Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. And often when I am thinking about that theme, I'm reflecting on the apocryphal statement by science fiction author William Gibson that the future has arrived already. It is just unevenly distributed. Well, this is an episode all about distributed futures, a panel discussion that I moderated for Arcosanti's second annual convergence event on the topic of decentralization. And in a way, we are performing an unevenly distributed future simply by having this conversation because our various notions of decentralization as panelists, as well as audience members in this conversation, varied widely and as is unfortunately so often the case in this show, as well as in the wider conversation of our metamorphic age, future literacy is also very, very unevenly distributed and also not even linear, you know, very different visions of the future that all of us are often looking into. So we have a fun one ahead, uh, goes all over the place featuring uh, Emmeline Friedman, who's on the Holochain team. We had Art Brock of Holochain on uh, earlier this summer. I think it was episode 81. Um, And then we have Sarah Johnstone of the New Mundo Project, which I know has come up on this show before, possibly in uh, Sophia Rocklin or Tibet Sprague's episodes. I believe that's 56 and 17 respectively i met both of them through the remarkable village building international project uh, that new mundo is and then also jacob devaney of uh, unify and also a contributor to the magnificent website uplift connect and jacob seems uh, quite committed to the blockchain version of a decentralized future as you will observe. And then also my friend Raven, a.k.a. Mitch Mignano, who was uh, on this show once already with Connor Habib discussing Rudolf Steiner and the occult sciences. Very interesting dude who plays a kind of foil to this conversation as a cultural historian with a limited understanding of the distributed ledger systems upon which so many believe our more humane and equitable future will be founded. Really, this conversation is so broad and so information dense that I don't really feel the need to append it with some florid rant about decentralization. But I just want to say that in the last month and a half that I have been working in my new position as social media for the Santa Fe Institute, that I have been thinking quite a bit about resilience and robustness and why things decentralize in the first place. Or perhaps, as was evident in last week's episode with Zachary Stein, why things adapt to polycentrism in the first place. It's not the total collapse of a center. It's the redistribution of the burden of adaptation to multiple regulatory networks. It's the specialization of the individuals as they are woven and subsumed into a new transcendent 
superorganismal individuality. As Pierre Teilhard de Chardin said, hypercollectivization leads to hyperspecialization. And I think nowhere is this more obvious than in festival culture and in the sphere of entrepreneurial innovation, both of which are represented in this discussion, where it undeniably pays to explore the margins and stay freaky, which is ironic, of course, because here I am reporting one of the last pre-show intros from Austin, Texas, in which the culture of innovative weirdness has sown the seeds of its own demise, but a story for another time. Thanks all so much for listening. Everyone who has been sharing the show with your friends, reviewing it on iTunes or wherever you can leave a five-star rating. These are hugely helpful acts. I greatly appreciate them. And everyone who has been donating to this show, I want to let you know I have some extra special goodies coming up. It is not too late to sign up as a patron for this show at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. And I am on the cusp of loading a significant number of patrons-only episodes all at once uh, for the holidays as well as a curated excerpt highlight reel of some of my favorite sound bites from this show, a feature-length collection of brilliant applause and laughter-inducing rants. And also, I have uh, several new pages of the Psychedelic Coloring Book coming soon. So if you're not already subscribed to this show, then uh, please consider it. There's a ton of free stuff up there as well, even if you're broke. And a huge thanks to everyone in the Future Fossils Facebook group, where the conversations are just getting better and better every day. And I am deeply honored to be the moderator and facilitator for such an amazing group of people. If you are, for whatever reason, starved for intelligent conversation, look no further. uh, Or, you know, start there. It's a great place and a wonderful scene. And I'm just so delighted to see it take on a life of its own. And that's really all for now. Uh, Everyone, thanks so much for listening and enjoy this episode. And I will see you again next week. than we do, and less with its brain than its central brain than we do, and uh, that's a that's a big thing that as we move into the 21st century and we we encounter the extraterrestrial intelligence, the other, 
whether it's AI or, or other creatures that already are alive on this planet or other human beings with a, cult, a different cultural thing, that there's a, uh, a diversity and plurality of neurotypes and uh, structural organizations that I want to speak to on this panel. But first, let's just uh, have everybody, starting with Emmeline, working in, uh, just give a quick introduction uh, and explain why you think you're sitting on this panel. <laughs> that's a, okay, that's a wonderful way to begin. Why do I think I'm sitting on this panel versus why I really am? Um, <laughs> no, I'm on, this, I'm on this panel because I have spent the last year and a half working with a technology group um, developing Holochain, which is not another cryptocurrency, but a competitive sort of architecture to the blockchain itself. Um, and it was created to address some of the issues in that space, primarily um, the massive, massive energy expenditure of the blockchain and also the centralization of power that actually comes along with this ostensibly decentralized technology. Um, so I'm always interested in kind of parsing that out in deeper ways so that, you know, we can alleviate some of those issues in the future. That's why I'm here. My name is Sarah Johnstone, and I serve a project called Numundo. Um, hopefully some of you have heard of us. We have a network of about 650 eco-villages, intentional communities, plant medicine centers, retreat centers, wellness centers around the world. And our mission is to scale transformational experiences. And we believe that um, the way to do that is through having experiences at impact centers. Um, so we think that permaculture and, and places like this are ways of... Um, humanity kind of pushing the boundaries, and these are different types of social experiments that we believe should scale to more people, and more people should live like this. So um, our project has been exploring blockchain and decentralization technology for the past year, um, and the reason I am sitting here and not my business partner, who is a um, very passionate voice in the blockchain and eco-village movement, is because he, has, he is at San Francisco Blockchain Week and then in route to Asia to speak. So um, I am excited to be here. It's important for me that there's more females in the decentralization and blockchain space. So I'm humbled and grateful to sit next to some exciting voices in the space and excited for the conversation. Yeah. Um, so my name is Jacob Devaney, uh, primarily a writer. Uh, just to tell uh, on the tales of what you said about uh, the feminine, uh, I do believe that uh, decentralized uh, power, decentralized information uh, distributed is, uh, is actually a, a feminine model. And, uh, and there's actually, there's a saying that you see out there, Satoshi was a woman. And uh, uh, primarily, I'm a writer. I never mm, got involved with cryptocurrency myself. I understood from the beginning uh, blockchain as a uh, systems architecture. And so a couple years ago, I started writing about how blockchain could be used to uh, basically solve our age-old dilemma of the tragedy of the commons. How do we commonly share um, and steward resources, etc. And uh, 
and how do we use this technology to address climate change, uh, corruption in government, um, et cetera, et cetera, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So I've never really been coming at, I kind of honestly feel like if, if we invented this kind of new plastic that, you know, is renewable and decomposed on its own and zero carbon footprint or something, and then we could do everything with it, and, and then all of a sudden people got and say, let's make poker chips. Uh, I kind of feel like that's what happened with blockchain and, uh, and cryptocurrencies, that people were applying an old world uh, mentality of ownership to a new world uh, architecture of a distributed network. And so uh, I feel that the blockchain has a lot more utility than trading crypto, although that is a huge part of what uh, powers it, the mining, etc. We'll get into that in more detail ways that we're resolving that. But uh, primarily I'm a writer and I'm a thinker and I like to translate what's happening in the tech world and relate it to what's happening in the real world. I'm uh, Raven and I don't have as much of an explicit reason uh, to be in this particular panel, so to speak, but I have a big commitment to participate in panels with Michael when we plan this, and then at lunch, it was like, this makes sense, and uh, I provide a good complimentary voice to a lot of the things that Michael thinks and talks about, I try to keep him honest, and all the rest of you as well, I want to keep you honest as well, but I, uh, I am a writer, I'm a researcher, and uh, I'm a musician, and I'm based in Santa Fe, and I live and work with people at the Biosphere 2. And I did academic research on Burning Man and the evolution of consciousness, and um, uh, I get gotten into a lot of weird stuff to talk about over the you years. Yes, uh, Raven, or also Mitch. What's your other name? Last name? Mignano, M-I-G-N-A-N-O. Yeah, and just as an unsolicited advertisement, uh, Mitch just had a really excellent episode on Eric Davis's podcast, Expanding Mind, where he got into the occult history of Burning Man and the role of the trickster in festival culture, which I felt was really uh, a big, and, you know, a, a necessary piece of this in, in terms of understanding sociocultural diversity and the resilience of, a, of, you know, the inherent value of diversity itself, you know, and, and providing multiple solutions for people. So, like, on that, oh, oh and also, hi, I'm Michael Garfield. Uh, I host Future Fossils podcast. My background is in evolutionary biology and developmental psychology. Um, artist, musician, writer. I'm working on a book called How to Live in the Future, Evolution in the Human Age. And uh, this is, I, I had Art Brock, who is the, the sort of visionary at the prow of Holochain on Future Fossils to discuss uh, the relationship between like the bi biomimicry and like, the study of natural systems and how we understand value, uh, which is a huge piece of the conversation that I hope that you will speak to. Um, so let's start just by talking about, <clears throat> about uh, decentralization has exploded. Like if you were to look at the Google Ngram viewer over the last couple of years, the frequency of this word in conversation has become quite much. Uh, we're having a panel here about it. So uh, why do you... I mean, obviously, I think all of us on some level know why th this moment in history is a moment where this is coming up. You know, the, the crumbling of uh, certain legacy forms of authority. 
But I'm curious to hear from each of you where you see a decentralization of existing structures uh, in like promising ways, uh, ways that you think should be encouraged. But also, I invite you to say like, where has this sort of new ideology being carried into places where it's inappropriate, or it's being wrongly applied, or um, you know, it's it's just become. Like, it, you know, maybe the next greenwashing or that kind of thing. Uh, if, if any of you have thoughts on the, 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 it, it, feel free to take that one way or the other if you don't want to give those. And anyone can start. Well, I'll start with you, Jacob, because you looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, let's be really um, upfront, honest in this situation. There is a huge hype gap in blockchain world. Uh, so huge. Uh, that it's really threatened the whole industry. Before we even go there, and I know that we've, we've already sort of assumed everybody knows, are we having a blockchain conversation here? Does, is anyone um, illiterate as to the sort of basic nature of that? Maybe it would be good to... Well, yeah, I was actually... So, blockchain aside, blockchain was probably the, the first time that we came up with this notion that security and transparency could be the same thing. Usually security means I have it, you know, under wraps in my safe deposit box, nobody has the key, and it's like that. And um, the blockchain gave us a model where uh, every one of us would have a ledger of exchanges, and then that way, each time a new exchange happens, uh, it's copied to all of our copies. And then that way, like if I say, oh, I'm going to change the ledger and give myself a bunch more money here, then everybody gets to hold up their copy and say, hey, all of ours are matching and identical and yours is different. You must be corrupted. So this is a new way of understanding through consensus, basically, uh, a form of consensus that uh, to create uh, security. Um, you know, so on that note... There, there is so much excitement around blockchain and this idea of uh, decentralized, consensus-driven uh, networks. Uh, and, a, and a real simple metaphor for it would be, because I think a lot of people, once you can actually start to think what it, the difference of centralized and decentralized, I see a lot of the issues that we have centralized power is uh, centralized information, all that. It's kind of like there's a human nature issue that occurs in that. If, if, uh, if there was a well in the middle of this room and that had all the water for the room, well, it's a very natural for us as mammals or primates or whatever animals, creatures that we are, that whoever's in charge of the well, their family's going to be taken care of or their tribe or their people. And then, uh, okay, I got the well and we got the well and here we need to fortify, get a wall over there or maybe we need some guns and protect it. And then we make up rules about who can get how many buckets of water and, um, and it becomes like that. And well, humans have always shown throughout history we don't do too well with power um, and uh, greed and so forth. And so the opposite of that, that's a centralized source for water. Um, it would be a natural thing for us to fight over it. It would also be a natural thing for greedy people or selfish people to want to co-opt it. So we basically have a social model and a social system built around centralization that actually encourages corruption. 
Um, the decentralized version of that would be we're all catching rainwater off of our roofs. We all have our own cisterns. And if somebody's cistern leaks, um, I could lend you some water. You could lend me water back. We don't need to go through a central authority um, to do that. We can go peer to peer and we're, we're distributed with the resources. And so um, there's a little background on that. And just to say that's specifically, there are kind of three different forms. I, want to, I do really want to keep this conversation bigger than blockchain. Um, there are three different forms that, have, that kind of show up in this conversation around decentralization. Architectural, which is like what you're talking about, like the, the structural piece of it. Uh, but then also logical, you know, like how is information processed in the system? And political, like where, how is the power organized? And those things are related but not identical. Um, yeah, do you mind if I just... Because you brought up the thing with the well, or did you want? It's however you got. So, but anthropologically speaking, so you, the shift from hunter gatherer to agricultural civil, the beginning of civilization in that sense, and that's when you had the storage of grain and the, the harvesting of crops, and then you have stationary human settlements, and then you have something to protect, and then the hunter switches over to like a warrior that can also raid other things that are being protected, and so that's a fundamental. That's a. That's like the centering of. In the beginning of civilization, it seems like we're at, and somebody that we both, a uh, historian that we both really like a lot, William Roman Thompson, who was one of my teachers, he talks about this being the end of civilization process and the beginning of a planetization process. And then McLuhan talks about going from going into decentralization into the acoustic electronic planetary sphere or whatever. So I just wanted to offer that context and if you're going to talk about like the water, coal, wealth, and. Yeah, I was kind of just gonna make this, yeah, I was gonna make the same comment. You know, it's not all about decentralized technology or the technology that facilitates the decentralization of information. Um, a lot of the interesting problems that I've seen actually um, in the space of decentralized technology is that people are starting to wake up to the fact that it's actually completely insufficient to decentralize access to information or services um, in terms of governance, and that decentralized governance or more distributed ways of collaborating together, of working together, of creating organizations that, um, that distribute power more equitably um, is not at all sufficient to have those decentralized technologies in place. Um, there's actually kind of like a human element of decentralizing or distributing power and information. Um, so I think it is important for us to track those two levels differently because we found that you know um, the technological layer does not at all make for the human layer. Could, could you give an example? Um, I mean, you, you got, there's some pretty low-hanging fruit in terms of the holochain critique uh, of like where the technology is not enough, where the idea is not enough, or it's, it, it's sort of warped in its execution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to take a really, really obvious example um, that I'll talk about a lot more um, in the workshop after this, actually, um, is just the way that um, the way that the distribution of wealth, like in the Bitcoin blockchain, um, has has shaped up. You know, like um, for folks like me, for whom um, you know, I consider myself a financial, like a post post two thousand eight financial activist. Right, and so there's kind of this. Um, for me, I have to remind, remind myself that, like, okay, if if we're going to be pissed off about the 99% and the 1%, and if that was a mantra, then we cannot possibly get behind um, a decentralized payment system in which 4% 
Um, 4% of the nodes on the network own 96% of the wealth of the network. So it's like, if you're pissed about the 99 and the 1%, be pissed about the 96 and the 4%. I'm sure you have a completely different quadrant to report from. Yeah, I think I'll speak a little bit um, towards just my own personal experience and the movement in general. So I really appreciate your analogy of water. I think that's a great one and something that it's been probably one of the better analogies I've heard. Um, and I go to quite a few blockchain events. So um, thank you for making that like accessible to this audience. Um, so let's see. I have been running around the world trying to spread the eco-village movement, um, specifically within the blockchain sphere, and trying to learn as much as I can about blockchain to figure out how we can apply the technology to um, our ecosystem. And what I'm finding is the technology is not quite there yet. Um, there are a lot of really amazing projects that have great visions and are working on um, on cool projects, but nothing has really been adopted yet. So it's a really interesting time in the space because there's not too much that has really scaled. Um, and there's also, quite frankly, quite a bit of shit out there. There's a lot of people who are doing um, massive raises. We're talking like $200 million raises um, and not really being held accountable for what they develop. So there's, it's kind of like the wild, wild west. Um, at the moment, the last few months have definitely slowed down. There's a lot of regulation coming into the space. Um, so you can definitely feel that everything is down at the moment. So all the traders, um, you know, but the, the morale in the space is, is definitely um, down. But what, what I'm, my own experience from decentralization, for me, it's about the movement of, like, the core principles of, of decentralization. So um, I'll just give a practical example about my lifestyle. I have now started to say that people are like, where are you from? And I'm, I say I'm decentralized because I, <laughs> I, 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 I am. I'm on the road and I have multiple home bases and... Um, that's becoming more and more of a thing in the millennial movement. Um, another trend I'd love to speak to, and you know, speaking with my millennial hat on, is um, it's a beautiful hat. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so a, a trend I'm seeing, which is is really interesting with the millennials, is people don't. I think that ownership is dying. I think millennials don't really care so much about. Um, Ownership and what we want is we want access to communities and we want access to cool stuff. So um, for me, that's what the decentralization movement is about too. Like I'm not looking for ownership. I think that having a home base like Arcosanti in the states and Tamara in Portugal, this is way more interesting for me to be part of communities with aligned values. Um, so so for me, that's kind of what decentralization is about. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want me to get up? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like also, I mean, she's conversation just is the human, that your guys are the human blockchain, you know, decentralized <laughs> permaculture communities, uh, intentional communities all over, and that, I think that does kind of speak to what you were saying about a technology layer, but also a human layer of right. um, decentralization. Our team is also decentralized, which is really fun and challenging. Uh, we're a team of, like, 10 to 15 people, and we're all over the world, and that makes for a lot of challenges, but um, it's also really cool, too. Like, I have my tribe of decentralized folks who care so much about eco-village living and permaculture and festival world, um, so, yeah. 
So something in this, the emergence of the eco-village movement, as well as, I'm going to shout out to my buddy Johnny Thomas here, who's a, uh, a resilience engineer who I got to know through teaching a philosophy of, of uh, crypto and decentralization webinar over the, the spring. And something that came up in a lot of our conversations was that this seems to be an evolutionary adaptation to scaling problems of civilization. And that, you know, it, it becomes, you know, the sun never sets on the British Empire, and America pretends it's not an empire, but has all of this, you know, hard and soft power colonialism going on. And so there is an ex- there's an extension of power from the, the, the power centers that, his, you know, you should speak to. It's like historically just sort of is, does not sustain itself. Well, usually, usually when there's a, an innovation in advance, the ruling class actually is one step ahead. They very have so much. It's like having a deck stack. Like you're going in, there's usually ways to appropriate, and actually it usually ends up expanding to where it's even worse. I mean, things are worse now than they were 30 years ago, economically speaking. Uh, you know, uh, and then with industrialization, things got like way worse. And a lot of things shift too. Like the that was, I was listening to this BBC podcast about the history of uh, work, and I was talking about reading. <laughs> reading this uh, Roman guide to how to keep your slaves, and he's like, it's weird, because we think of slavery like this, but actually, you're reading it, it sounds a little bit like a corporate manual for having a happy team, you know, like, because they wanted the most efficiency out of them, or whatever, then you start to see that surf comes, like, the word surf comes from slave, and then it's like, then you get into the rise of modernism after the medieval period, and then there's another appropriation by what was the aristocracy in into the economic sphere. You do have a rise of the middle class, but it's so complicated. Right now I'm reading a book by this guy, Jonathan Ramey, called Politics of Divination, where he makes the argument that this free, neoliberal free market um, ideology has really, really exhausted itself, and it's also super camouflage of the same basic control system, which is that now, now we think that these mar- these economists are, are they're like the oracles and like this person understands these market forces and understands chance and I also was a professional gambler too so I find this particularly really interesting I made a living with that for a few years and, uh, and he's making the argument that like in ancient Rome uh, that was the thing was to be able to participate in these kind of divinatory procedures uh, but it, it's also divinatory in a way like sacred rituals like regarding birth and death. Um, but just divination in the sense of like working with what some people call nature as like a, um, you know as like a cosmic other that you can't control. Uh, you have to have some way of interfacing with that. What goes beyond your ability to, you know, what's beyond the human. And and he's saying that that actually hasn't really changed, but the narrative has changed. So the authority and the power structure is in is in how the narrative is written. And when people think that the, that the free market works the way that most people think that it works, and they don't, but they're still rewarding successful people and punishing failure, failure in a shameful way that is completely not, has nothing to do with probability or statistics. And anyway, it's pretty complicated, but it's an interesting idea, and it just emphasizes for me the initial point that whenever there's one of these innovations and advances in, in technology and efficiency, there's generally... A, a way that the ruling class that can be argued to go all the way back to the beginnings of civilization itself appropriates it and finds another way to move what the center is. You could decentralize this, and then that power could be centralized in a totally different way. You know, like uh, that it's invisible to us now, but becomes visible when we're in the next when the next phase when we're things again. <laughs>
Again, to, like, to your point, the centralization of the wealth generated by Bitcoin mining. These people are, are like standing on the well. Yeah, essentially, I mean, there's not, what I think what resonated uh, with me most of what you said was that, you know, it's like when the, when the debt, when the debt is stacked a particular way, like you're not, I mean, I think it would be naive of us to assume that what is going on in the, in the blockchain world is anything other than just like a very typical power struggle between those who have it and, you know, those who, those who are able to get in, you know? Um, and that's, you know, most blockchain cryptocurrency works through, um, you know, works through this sort of, um, it usually has a first mover, but a heavy, heavy first mover benefit. Um, and really it involves kind of re-engineering um, like your entire, your entire fundraising and also your entire, like the way that your blockchain works, like the sort of proof that's used. Um, in order to alleviate that first mover advantage. And then, of course, you know, there needs to be some other, neither can we kid ourselves about the fact that there needs to be yet a different form of incentive, or people need to be moved to create these systems for reasons other than, you know, creating something new as to be able to really get in and have a stake um, in something in the ground floor, right, in order to receive a rich among investment, or whatever it is. So, so that, that, that sort of it comes to the question of how is how can we make if, it, if we can't make civilization this way, how can we make human planetary culture not a pyramid scheme? That's <laughs> well, point on what you're saying about scaling is, uh, I think that's the, the root of it really there. It comes down to, uh, A, it's scaling trust, and it has to do with sovereignty. When we live in a small village, you know, you, you know that like, oh, you know, Mary will always give me milk and butter and on a cold winter day when I'm making cookies and I run out. Or, you know, Frank will always come over and help us trim the trees, you know, when the branches are going to fall on the roof. Or, you know, like, you know, Bob down the corner. Like, he never even has a Halloween candy for the kids. He's always really stingy. And everybody knows everybody in that ecosystem, in a little village. But because... Um, you know, we're like rabbits, and we've flourished, and populations have grown. We have a way to, because community is held together and based on trust, period. That's, that's the end of it. All exchanges are based on trust. And that's what holds a city together. That's what holds trust networks. That's what it is. So we had to figure out a way to establish trust in the larger um, populations, where maybe we don't know each other, but we need to have an exchange. Or um, or even now, with the internet, it's people across the world that you don't even see, you're just typing. And so the way that we solve that, um, and again, it comes down to some aspects of the root of common law, which is by establishing third-party verification for trust. So uh, the bank will verify that this piece of paper that has a one on it is worth one dollar. And, um, you know, you can't talk directly to God. You have to go through the preacher. And, um, you know, and the government is going to hold this set of laws in place to make it so that commerce can happen between us without us actually really knowing each other and trusting each other. And what the blockchain did, and blockchain and beyond, but particularly the blockchain, a revel revelation of the blockchain. We could call it distributed ledgers. Distributed ledger technology, DLT yeah. or whatever. Um, is it's kind of like a trust machine. And what it does is it allows 
an immutable record to be uh, kept in a non-centralized place, which has the ability to restore trust for exchanges globally. And the thing that's lovely about it is that this notion of the third-party verification of trust also became another incentive in our society. So if it's like, you know, you want to give some eggs and sugar to her to make cookies, and, and then I step in and get in between and say, well, you know, we need to make sure that that egg and is fresh, and you know, I'm protecting you, and, and then somebody else comes in and says, hey, well, Jacob's got a great gig over there, he's like the gatekeeper, I'm going to be a gatekeeper, and hey, yeah, we'll get in there. Next thing you know, when two people want to make an exchange, there's ten gatekeepers in between, there's an arbitrage on the system, and everybody's getting their cut, and people can't just go directly to what they want or need, they're having to go through all these things, and each one of those gatekeepers has a tax. And so that's another thing that distributed ledger technology does is it allows trust to be established without third-party um, verification systems and allows individuals to interact on a peer-to-peer basis. So this is, I, 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 this is not in any critical way, actually. I'm just naive about how, how has that become trust? Like, like if um, I think of when I studied evolutionary psychology, there was this thing about reciprocal altruism where it's like this is kind of like game theory thing where you you start out and you basically they ran this program where the best the best thing is to trust until you know until the sort of bad thing happens and once a bad thing happens there's a reputation we have gossip in the community all that but trust to me is like a moral thing between one being and another and if there's a third party then it's like the in God we trust which is an abstraction of yeah we're gonna back it up buddy don't worry about it like you're talking yeah, about exactly. I agree with all that but I don't I just literally don't yet understand what is how does the distributed ledger you're using the word trust loosely associated with this distributed ledger thing. How? What is that exactly in terms of like this human moral, like reciprocal, altruistic disposition that we already have? How does that work? Is it something bad happens and then you don't trust that person? Or no? Yeah, it's more. I mean, so what I understand, and I also have a you know degrees and graduate degrees in psychology, and that's very much my background. And for me, there is a world of difference between the sort of, like, deeply visceral and humanistic, you know, kind of um, images and and concepts that I get when I think about trust um, and what is involved in this trust machine. And yet, it still is fulfilling that reciprocal function. And I think that's what's really important, is that there be, you know... For a trust machine, you need some sort of programmed reciprocity. To me, reciprocity and community, right? I mean, you can't have one without the other. And so so the way that it works is that um, it's a trust machine because essentially um, what is being reciprocated um, when there is a, a transaction, like reciprocated between the community, is sort of um, some node, some other agent in the network, um, sort of buying for an opportunity to get to act as the clearinghouse of that transaction. So the, the, the activity, the responsibility, the authority of that intermediary is distributed. That's that's what's distributed. Okay. Everyone so gets, you know, it, yeah, everybody it's like has a lottery. Script. Who's going to act as the third okay. party at this moment? So if that's constantly shifting across the... Then, like, you, then you don't have to elect a new asshole every four years. Exactly. 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 How do you know the third you know party? Like, it's just we don't know, and then how do you know that's it's, the it's person? That, it's essentially a process of peer review. And this is how we construct yeah. knowledge in the scientific realm as well. And I think that this is, a, this is an interesting piece to get into the, the decentralization of uh, informational authorities. 
because ultimately that's, you know, when you're looking at a, a network like this, a distributed ledger, you're talking about um, preventing people from being able to censor that network, you know, to edit it. Um, and there's something going on right now, which I think speaks to the wildness, westness of our situation, which is that as uh, we learn more and more through our increasing hyperconnectivity, uh, the ability of these legacy institutions to continue to sort of perform their authority is under extraordinary interrogation. <laughs> like, we, you know, the, the pedophile church scandals, you know, is just like one tiny example of how we're getting to this point, which is very similar to Martin Luther nailing the 99 uh, uh, objections of the Catholic Church. But what happened after that was this mess where everyone was saying, oh, I have a direct line to God. No, I have a direct line to God. Like when the tree falls in the forest and everyone's scrambling for that light. So here we are in the so-called post-truth era. And this is really the heart, I think, of the conversation is how, like, how do we know what the hell is even real? But do you, are you, is this like, a, like what's happening in China would be like a shadow version of it? You know what they're doing with, with the, the, the trust, like where, where it's the kind of like monitoring everybody. It's almost like you get karma points and then you can, you, your whole life can be controlled based on this like perception of the community. But it's like it's not something that's very distributed. But it's distributed in another way. Do you already know what's going on with that? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a totally... That's, yeah, so... Well, okay, you know, there's a bunch of rabbit holes here. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah, on that yeah, where's, where do you get a rabbit hole that has that's going to help us in our lives and our organizing rather than yeah. I don't need to understand all of the ins and outs of what's happening in the international community. I want to know how to apply this stuff in my organizing work. That's the rabbit hole I'd love to see it again. But I'll what, what kind of organizing do you do, just out of curiosity? Uh, I do anti-racism organizing with white people. I organize intentional communities and train them. I do stuff around class. Or I do lots of different kinds of organizing. So principle level, but practical would be super helpful for me. Sarah, do you want to speak to that? Because I feel like you, you have an understanding of different organizational architectures and like how that... No. Yeah. yeah, it's a hot topic right now. Um, we have a lot of friends whose projects are working on the governance piece and decision making, and um, I think that we're still letting that play out. Like I have yet to see. I, I mean, the goal is to be decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. And that everyone performs and creates value, and those who don't are not contributing or are not they're eliminated out of the organization, right? But I think it's still we're still seeing this stuff. Um, it's got a long way to go. Um, even even though we talk about all this decentralization, if you look at all the projects, they're all most of them are centralized projects with centralized teams, um, with the goal of potentially being open source or at some point, you know, um, being more decentralized. But it's still like a centralized team and for uh, controlling things. And I think we see that even in the communities movement, right? So in terms of how you can apply this technology to organizing, that is a, um, that's a difficult question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> were, you, were you finished? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, there's a lot of really interesting projects out there. Um, and I think we're still at the forefront of seeing what's actually going to work. And I, my hope is that six months from now that there's actual tools that we can start playing with, like our, our movement of the communities and eco-villages can start to use these tools and, and figure out if they work 
or not work, but then we enter a whole other challenge, which is like getting our you know off-grid people who are not already um, tech savvy or you know so um, maybe interested in technology to trying to get them to even use our tools. So yeah. So I can I can make these crazy faces when the right thing to say pops into my mind, but um, <laughs> but really so Sarah is precisely right in saying that these technologies really are nothing yet, like in, not in the sense of like oh hopefully you know we'll have developed things in a little bit, but literally anything that you would want to use the internet for, or any tools that you would want to use to to coordinate groups or to plan or to share resources. Any, any of that that you want to do, it's possible to do with this decentralized technology. So then it's like, wait a second, if these tools already exist, like why get into this whole new realm of activity? And for me, the common thread um, of why I think groups, particularly very socially conscious groups, would, would want to be sort of pioneers in this space is because of the divestment from the companies like the global monopolies that act as our communicational clearinghouses as it stands. You know, so um, I'm in connection with a lot of groups in, in Atlanta that do some, some more radical organizing. And outside of issues of privacy and surveillance, which are huge and important, you know, um, there's also the fact that, you know, if you're if you're doing like um, if you're connecting intentional communities, say um, or if there's some interest in information stewarding among autonomous groups, um, you certainly don't want that information to sort of be doubly gifted between, between whoever's information it is and Google, for example, or Amazon, right? I mean, it's a very real fact that, like, when you're storing your when you're storing your information, or when your information is like passing through <coughs> the servers of these large companies, um, that ultimately have a big hand in executing a lot of like social engineering from above mm-hmm. sort of programs. It's a really important thing to do is, is is divest from reliance on these companies because there truly are ways. You know, decentralized tech is all about saying. You know, there are there are ways of, of communicating and coordinating um, that don't need to be involved with these really problematic, like bigger tech company mm-hmm. middlemen. And also, it's mentally there's the human layer and the technology layer. Um, this decentralized technology idea, um, and especially where it comes to blockchain is uh, they're collaboration tools. Uh, ultimately, that's what it is. And we're coming out of a period of competition and learning, we're needing to socially, culturally learn to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one example of something that, um, that uh, I've helped on work on a project with is uh, if you're in an organization, you need to fundraise. <clears throat> okay, so of course, there's lots of ways people fundraise. Um, one of the big issues with fundraising is that uh, I'm and back to reciprocity. Uh, I'm I'm an organization that does this or that, and I want your money or your money, or I want everybody to chip in five bucks, and it's like a crowdsourced thing. Uh, so one of the, one of the responsibilities that comes in on that for me is I have to report back to the people that funded me and show my impact, like what I've done, and um, and donors. 
whether that's individuals with lots of money or crowdfunded or whatever, they want to know that they're not getting ripped off. You know, they want to know that um, that they're actually making an impact with the money that they donate. So, uh, and a lot of times, uh, organizations are strapped with all the administration and the accounts and everything to report back to, it's like, okay, we got our money to do our project, and now we need to hire accountants and other people and everything to report back if people gave us money. So blockchain um, is really done a lot, again, to take out the middlemen to allow a direct uh, live interface where investors, whether it's crowd um, uh, funded or whether it's an individual angel donor or whatever, gets to see on the dashboard how the money's being spent, um, where, where it's going. And the other thing that's beautiful because it is a um, uh, shared um, uh, ledger, everybody gets to see it, and there's options for public and private keys within that. This is the thing that I love the most is it also allows for um, a comparison of best practices. So, okay, so say, like, I'm UNICEF, and, and I want to um, get this food to these people that are starving over here. And now this is on a blockchain, and this is now transparent for other people to see. Other vendors might say, hey, you know what, you're getting this food item from, you know, halfway around the world, and it has a huge carbon footprint and it's more expensive, whereas we have a local solution, maybe, I don't know, spiraling or some sort of superfood that's here that will provide these in, these nutrients and we see where you're buying it because it's transparent. Mm-hmm. Well, then the funders see that and they say, wow, you're not efficiently running your impact organization. And that puts pressure on the organization to buy more locally or buy better priced things. And it also allows, and you know what, it's crazy. You see it in nonprofits a lot. There's, they can be the most dysfunctional realm is a nonprofit sphere. And they're all competing with each other. I noticed, like, I've worked with peace organizations, like the guy that used to be the CEO of this peace organization is now in this one, and those organizations don't communicate and stuff. When you have a, a cooperation tool or a collaboration tool that has a transparency um, what it does is it kind of also takes away some of the normal human um, politicking that can go on um, because it just basically says, here's what these guys are doing, here's what these guys are doing. None of it's hidden by their bookkeeper. None of it's hidden by anything that's available for all of us to look at. I'm say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give my money to these guys because they have the lowest carbon footprint and they're having the most impact and it's visible to all of us. And we're not depending on a third party, again, third party form of trust, trust uh, report to say, oh, you know, these guys are great, so keep giving them money. Um, so that's one practical way that blockchain can assist uh, organizations and activists. Another thing, though, sort of more generally, uh, without like the technical specificity there, is that um, when people are generally talking about the blockchain, they're talking about specific blockchain algorithms that require network-wide consensus. Everyone is running the same algorithm. Everyone has the same copy of the ledger. That's logically centralized. That's not actually, when we talk about like neurodiversity and community, when we talk about you know, any kind of like identity politicking, that's the opposite of that, in a sense. And one of the things I admire about the Holochain Project is the acknowledgement for a plurality Based that starts on the that rather than enforcing a network-wide consensus, starts by building consensus from the smallest units as an emergent thing, and allows for like multiple local optima 
you know, so that this is what works over here. And when you're talking about, uh, you know, the sort of human impact of this kind of thinking, the human impact is that it's it's known historically that you know the general has to run the war from the back and doesn't know if they can sort of trust the information they're getting from the front line. And now we live in a global world where there is no front line and everyone's living downstream of everyone else. So that the constant question is who is affected by this decision? Mm-hmm. You know, and so by by redistributing the governance of a particular issue to the people that will actually be affected. So people actually have stake in the outcome of that particular issue. You know, that's that's one way that you can apply uh, decentralized thinking without any kind of computer technology at all. You know, um, I have a question. But is this still all like what you just said, like relative? And I don't know. I'm not a big. I don't know a lot of other stuff. But like, I'm more on the human side of it. Like, are, is what you're saying like generally more hypothetical? Because what you started with with the 96 percent. To me, what you're saying, I take as has to be hypothetical because for that to work, for that system to work, the trust still is inherent in the technology because when you're given it to the people, the way it's designed, theoretically, will do that. But our behavior and the way that we actually act when it's in our hands is different. So like, what is the education? like? Is As this rolls out, who is teaching the people to bend their own interaction systems to do that. We because should, otherwise that's be, like, yeah, yeah, that's what's scary. Is like that's like so that's I don't I don't like it has to be hypothetical because it can't do that unless the education component of that factor is going at the same time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. perpetuity as well, like right. Yeah. Right. The, the literacy that, issue is a huge issue. Otherwise, you're putting blind faith in the programmers of the code. But what, yeah, what it's happens, not it's interdependent, yeah. right? That's like. Right? Yeah, I mean, the programmers of the code, look, I mean, it's still just, it's still a computer system, you know, like, like the, the transparency issue and the, like, ability for us to gauge impact more realistically, it still hinges on people, like, entering the right numbers into the computer, right? Uh-huh. I mean, so and there's like, no... Uh, right? Sorry? Yeah, and, like, their whole motives, like, that, none of that evaporates. Right, right exactly. So there's, and, and yet it's, it's quite a meaningful... Yeah. It's meaningful that like another facet of another facet of blockchain and and holo chain as well actually is that um, entries that are made are immutable. They do not change. Uh-huh. That's like a crucial facet of the system is that it's append only. Um, you can't you can't take anything off, uh-huh. right? So there is something something real and something galvanizing, I think, but in about to create these cultures in having a technology that sort of becomes that can't be anything other than an artifice. Right. You know? For well, so it's like that informing it's a tool to inform the paradigm shift. Like Well there's there's an issue here about incentives. You're talking about the, the motives of the people participating, and you spoke to that, Jacob, about you know the difference between rain catchment versus a well. You know, and so one of the things that I see coming from evolutionary biology here is that the types of organisms that develop in a certain ecosystem depend on the available resources of that ecosystem, multiplied by the sort of the existing biology of those organisms and what they're capable of evolving from and into. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is an incentive landscape, and that. Part of that is 
a, a diversification, a, a, a re-evaluation of what we actually consider valuable and what is motivating us to act in the first place. Yeah. What, 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 technology that culture? what was that? Incentive landscapes. If you look at incentive structures and incentive landscapes, this is a big piece of the conversation in a lot of these companies. Like, what kind of behaviors are we encouraging? What kind of yeah, systems okay. are we going to design where you put somebody? Because we know this. We know this from psychological research that that compassion is contextual, yeah. and that you, know, you take somebody on the on the, the New York Stock Exchange floor and they're a cutthroat motherfucker. They come home to their wife and kids, and not so much, you know. Maybe yeah. still so much because they're spending all their time on the floor. But, but that you know, that you can sort of create systems where people are encouraged to collaborate, and systems where people are encouraged to compete violently against one another. And we can design better systems that encourage altruism from sociopaths, yeah. just because it's serving them too. I guess I just like the fact where you're like, we should be, because I, with all this stuff, I still get to, I'm still on the side of like, right, but like, while this is rolling out, the education needs to be developed too, to distribute to the hands of the people socially, or, or we're not, we're going to end up in the same place as the iPhone, you know, because we weren't prepared for that, and look where we are now, and so like, that's what I, I like, I love it, I don't, I, mean, I have nothing against it, I totally am there, but like, I am just like, yeah, but like, we can't keep do putting stuff in our hands if like, we're not doing that part at the same time. I, I get like, and that takes a long time. That takes, that's a slower process. To so I just get like... The, the technology is already shaping our culture unbelievably. And, and we need to not necessarily think of the technology as something separate from us. We dreamt this stuff. Mm -hmm. It came out of our DNA. Mm -hmm. And this is, looks like a technology, this foreign technology, this is rocks ground up. And it's running based on the electrons that are circling our planet. Um, there's a reciprocal relationship between us and our technology. And our technology always shapes our culture. It might not happen just like that. But what you're saying is absolutely right. That's why we're having this conversation. We have to learn to think like a hive mind. We need to learn to shift from competitive to cooperative or collaborative. Um, and so that's happening. But it's not an either or. This is a... Um, uh, this goes out in all directions. Um, it's a multidimensional uh, thing that's happening. And it is a like chicken or egg thing. But we can already think, like, just look how much we think differently just from having the internet. I mean, what was I don't know, 10, 11 years ago that we got YouTube, or not even 10 years ago that we got cameras on our phone, the amount of data that we're creating, uh, it's just like exponent, we created more data in the last year than humanity has ever created in the history of humanity. So, um, you know, that's what I think is happening right now. That's the conversation, and it's not a direct line, it's going okay. like this in all directions at once. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the technology may be sort of just symptomatic of a, yeah. a study. I, I get, I get yeah. it. Yeah, yeah which... Which is my question relates to that. So I so I'm a cooperative culture trainer. That's like what I do primarily. And so my question, like keying off of what you just said, that like you know systems evolve based on the resources that are available to them. So I want to know like where are the working class and poor people, and where are the people of color in this movement who are like helping to shape this so that we're not just so this isn't just being shaped with from perspectives that are going to perpetuate racism and classism, like. 
is that work happening? Like, like, are you all talking uh, yeah, to each well, other about yeah. that? And like, where are yes. those folks? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, great. So absolutely. I would like to know about that. Well, I mean, you have to have a little bit of an understanding for the ecosystem state, particularly on the blockchain. The blockchain was a distributed network of nodes. The mining was not, and the mining is what fuels the blockchain. And so we had a decentralized Bitcore with mm-hmm. blockchain one, then we have blockchain two, and blockchain three just launched. The blockchain three now includes a distributed mining model. So when you have the gatekeepers to who gets to verify the transactions are is a gatekeeper, then you're in a well situation again. Even if you know the the block the Bitcore itself was distributed. So now there there are people there are conscious people that are part of this movement. There's scam artists as well. Just people are people, um, but. They, there are people that have put the thought into recognizing that, for example, if we could do mining in a distributed way, like on an FPGA chip, it could be on a cell phone that's like my iPhone 4 that I had three years ago that now somebody in Africa has or whatever like that, they can now participate in this. Um, there's more people with cell phones than homes in India. Um, so uh, this is allowing a different kind of access, and people are thinking of this. And there's a lot of, in my opinion... There, well, there's a lot of scam artists, of course, but there are a lot of very conscious people in this um, movement that are thinking of what you're well, presenting. Scam artists look like like the hacker minor thing you're talking about, like Russian hacker. No, it's, it's, it's more like the, uh, the 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 large venture raises without product kind of shit. Oh, okay. um, I want to I want to flip sure. this though. Do you have a, is that a question? I do. Okay, let's hear uh, it. I kind of. Uh, Expanding on this first question, could you give some concrete examples of the way that distributed ledger technology helps us manage or steward commons in general? Like, like, awesome, because I wanted yeah. to talk about enclosure and unenclosure. Exactly. And yeah. maybe that's, you brought up the enclosed carrier earlier without actually mentioning that. Um, you know, this issue of the clearinghouses and the pipelines and other people's infrastructure through which we communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like. Yeah, so you're talking like data commons? <laughs> Not, not even data commons, but it, the work of Justin again, next year, just understanding like research commons in general, how just to bring yeah. it to a concrete level of how we're managing the things we hold in common to survive. How does this technology help us do that? Absolutely. So a lot of the way, I guess part of, you know, and this gets to what you were saying about um, distributed mining or decentralized mining, you know, like um, the push for the push to include more and more people in technologies like this actually kind of doubles as like a really deep look into where there is unused capacity. Like it's almost like the the, the distributed ledger space is kind of also like trying to revivify a little bit the sharing economy, which is not a sharing economy. And the idea just being that, you know, with um, a certain level of sophistication, of accounting, um, it becomes easier to really like kind of you know become like a dowser for for unused capacity to be able to better match it with with unmet needs, right? So um, so an example would be um, a group that a group that is soon to do um, some fundraising on Holochain. Um, it is a food company, and essentially what their what their model is. Um, is buying up um, farmers' seconds 
and um, food that they would be thrown away. And all of this is facilitated by the, the coordination technology and the tracking technology. But essentially, they're, they're buying up farmers um, what would be food waste um, and um, using gentle, uh, gentle drying centers to, um, to retain like 94% of the nutrients um, and also the color and the flavor of food over many years. So creating shelf-stable organic food, um, you know, that, that, that would have been waste. Um, and so being able to sort of keep like a, keep better, better track of, okay, you know, this would be wasted. Um, there are ways to, you know, there are ways to reuse it. Um, be able to create um, food banks for, for communities in need. And, and mainly it's, a, but it's really a business innovation. You know, it's like it, technology facilitates, you know, um, much, much tighter control of, of resources ultimately and the seeking out of, of other markets for them. So the ability to get a greater reach with the global crowdfund um, or something like that, also facilitated by these technologies, um, makes it a lot easier to create, um, you know, kind of more clever plans that allow um, greater revenue, that then allow the creation of commons like food security banks from this project. Also, another concrete example to pin on that, that I think will touch everybody here who's been on Facebook since 2004, or like I have, and spent my entire adult life basically building someone else's pyramid and his robot nanny and all that bullshit is that um, I was never paid a dime for my value contributions to any social media platform in which I have ever participated until like the last year that I started participating in, in distributed ledger based platforms where the, the data ownership is returned to the agents participating in that system. So all of the money that you're making off of this ad revenue model is money that I should be making because it's my data. And if, I think looking back on this in 50 years, we'll look at this as sort of the resolution of a humanitarian crisis. That like we, a big piece of the 2008 financial issue is that our entire generation, to the degree that we were led into believing our participation in social media was necessary for our position in the market or like, you know, our, our professional existence. It meant that that much of our energy every day that was that our parents got paid for, we were not getting paid for. And, you know, when you get into the barrier of entry to participate in the finer things of human existence, art, culture, etc., well, those things have all taken a nosedive over the last 10 years because nobody has money to buy art when, but they can look at it on Instagram while they're you know vomiting their personal data into the machine you know <laughs> so that's not cool and we can and like we can absolutely create systems where every single participant with a zero barrier to entry you know as long as you have a phone again no house you know whatever as long as you you can access and you can participate you're going to get paid you know and so i think that that's and also, you know, you can feed back into that system and, and inform collaborative decision making. And I want to point out one more example, if that's yeah. okay. Just um, with the sharing economy. So companies like Airbnb and Uber, I used to be really passionate about those companies um, and, and actually work with them. Um, and now I think that they're bullshit because I've watched them basically, you know, revolutionize specific industries in a way, yet they are now 
you know, massive corporations that take a, a, a large percentage of the money from the, the end user. 30 to 40%. Yeah. Um, so what's happening now is we're seeing really interesting projects pop up that are like challenging Airbnb and Uber to eliminate them, right? And, and eliminate that percentage too that goes to that company um, so that the, the money can go directly to to the homeowner or the, the, tech, the driver, right? So um, we haven't really seen those projects take off yet, but they're well-funded. So I hope that you know, I'm still a little bit optimistic that we will start seeing um, someone make a move, or or maybe it will be these corporations that like get into the blockchain space. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these companies um, do have teams or have partnerships and are working on it. Um, how they use the technology, I'm not sure, but yeah, no, there's a fair Airbnb in Portugal and Arcade City, which is an alternative ride share in New York City. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's so, a few. Yeah, so they're out there, and, and the idea just being, and this is why it's like, it's kind of not a lot more exciting than better business, you know, because it's like, you have people at almost, at no, very, very little marginal cost, you know, like hosting, um, you know, hosting the infrastructure of the software, mm-hmm. so there's really nothing to say that a company is doing, um, except for sort of providing like that, that general security that you can expect to come from a middleman. You know, but it's like you take that out and suddenly it becomes really, really clear to see that you only need, you know, to take 1% out of the interaction in order to, you know, in order to be able to pay a software developer to maintain the application or, or you know, or whatever it is, or even a little bit more for, you know, like legal fees and things like that. Um, but ultimately, like, that's a huge, you know, talk about the working class. I mean, it, yeah, it's it's just a huge day. Like that could be the difference between you know like the like ten fifteen dollars an hour sort of. You know. And what's going to drive this too is uh, again and we have another shift we're in the process of, which is moving from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy. And so, um, it, like for example, there is uh, well, there's a couple out there, and I'm actually working on another uh, a social media. Uh, platform, which basically you say, you know, what's the value of Facebook? Why do we go there? Oh, I can see my my sister's baby pictures, or you know, my friend that's a vegan chef, their great vegan dessert, or my other friend that's a writer wrote a cool article about something I'm interested in, and so it's like the value of that community, Facebook or whatever those platforms are, is created by the people who put their stuff up there. That's what draws us all there. So now a social media. Uh, network that uh, actually uses uh, tokenization to value all the contributions of everybody in that network. Now, all of a sudden, you say to people that are on Facebook, hey, how'd you like to have a um, social media page where whatever you contribute to that community goes back to you? And, um, and at the same time, where you have more control of your data in that arrangement, and where you get to control what comes down your feed based on your affinity groups or your interests and so forth. Well, right there, you have, that's a market-driven shift in consciousness. All of a sudden, everybody goes, wait a second, we're getting ripped off over here. And bam, and then, then you're, you're in a different, um, you know, you're in a community that's a regenerative community with data and information and exchanges of ideas and energy between humans uh, instead of an extractive uh, community, which is like Facebook, where they're just taking everything that they can from you, 
we're all feeding into getting everybody there, which is their value, but then it's going to Mark Zuckerberg's pocket. Um, and so we will see these changes happen because, again, it comes back to this best practices thing. When they can't censor out other alternatives that put their models to shame, um, then we're able to actually move the whole culture by... Um, <coughs> by using, utilizing a regenerative model, a cooperative model, instead of an extractive and competitive model. You had a question. No. Yeah. I have a quick okay. Okay. question. I'm just curious about, like, if, if, I'm starting to understand a little better now, and it sounds like there's, there's so much potential, and I wonder, like, when you, when, uh, in your experience with talking to other people about what kind of things, and any of you, that things can be done, and, and what kind of... Uh, forms you can create, like these type of organizing. Do you, do you ever, or do you know of any kind of like interdisciplinary kind of like gatherings for that where there's like an anthropologist there and maybe an evolutionary psychologist? Because it sounds to me like one thing could be a credible waste of energy is like people that, you know, if you didn't have that kind of like, might save a lot of time and energy or is it really like that? Or what's it like? Asking for a friend, right? What's that? I love that question. We were traveling a lot and going to a lot of blockchain uh, conferences and events, and that was one thing that we noticed, was like, where are the permaculture people? Where are the back-to-land people? Um, where's the eco-village movement in this conversation? Where are the burners? And so that is something that our um, that New Mundo is really passionate about, and I'm really personally passionate about, is the intersection of merging these cultures. And so we are... Um, co-producing events in our free time and, and trying to do that, bring the crypto people together, the best minds in crypto, the conscious crypto people, um, with people like the people who are at this gathering to, because we think that that is the best opportunity to have feedback and ideas created. And so um, we just produced an event in Portugal called Anarcho Portugal right before Boom. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and Hello Tater, our sponsors. So thanks to our sponsors. We haven't figured out the revenue model piece, but we're not really too concerned about that right now. Right now, the goal for us is to get those minds in a room together. So have crypto events at eco villages. Um, so that's something that we're super excited about as well. So we're working on it. Get one at Sergio Ranch. You so you've been waiting so patiently. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm looking at is. Um, is transparency the basic bottom line here? Or what else does this new technology do that goes beyond an extensive database? Well, I mean, transparency is a feature, but it's not a compulsory feature. Uh, there, are, there are ways that you can design these. Uh, I mean, like, there are public and private blockchains. Holochain is, a, you know, a project where uh, transparency is permissioned at every level, so it's emergent from the ground up, and you decide who you give your information to. You know, so there are there are ways to do it, and ways, and I think that that's I think that ultimately when we're talking about like a decentralization of value systems, that it's good to have transparency sometimes and not sometimes. Privacy, you know, yeah. that privacy is another important thing that ha- we have to find a way to to strike a balance, to, like what the needs of a particular. Uh, situation are in terms of transparency and privacy and how to achieve that. And it, it's not, yeah. Yeah, but also also the, the immutability is really important. 
is that the way that you know the way that um, it's possible to verify in a distributed system? It's only possible to to verify um, that information is you know to to um, kind of this way disputes and stuff like that, and to know that like okay, the information that I have is the information you have, like the basis of coordination. Um, like any any distributed ledger is gonna gonna ensure that data has provenance. Isn't that an aspect of transparency? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's security through transparency. But it's, and it's also not necessarily the case, and this is kind of the blockchain, this is precisely the blockchain holo chain difference, is that um, for blockchain, every single node on the network carries that ledger of everything that happens on the network. But, in, but with holo chain, um, there's kind of an alternative method of ensuring that data provenance, um, which is one that is more directly peer-to-peer. Like it's like um, if we have a transaction, um, we countersign that transaction, and then a copy of it um, goes somewhere else in the network to be called up um, and pieced back together with ours. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone on the network either carries a copy of that transaction or is able to see it. Which is also much more energy efficient. That's a big piece of it. He actually got a question next, and then we'll him, and then we'll get to you. So. Uh, my question was about uh, adoption and engagement, because we have so many alternatives already that are decentralized, and some of them even pay us for, for Facebooks and Instagrams and YouTubes and whatnot. We're all using Facebook right now when there's so much better alternatives. How do you feel about helping get people engaged to actually hop on board? I think it's all about incentive alignment, and that's what I love most about blockchain. Um, so for me, just a practical example in my day-to-day life, so um, I incentivize my tenants to pay me in crypto because I am such a believer in, while crypto is way down, I am such a believer of like the principle of the technology and the technology in general that I want everyone I know in my life to be involved like through the ways and not to sit on the sidelines and to, to, to be involved. So I incentivize my, my tenants and give them a discount on their rent if they will pay in crypto. Um, and that's a way for me to introduce the technology, like we talked about, the education hurdle, right, to get people to download a wallet. And um, my business partner, David Casey, who should be sitting here, um, he has done a fantastic job of putting together like a, a one-pager cheat sheet that we often like hand out to our friends and anybody who's interested in the space and it's like hey follow these simple steps to download a wallet and here's the exchanges you should use um so i think it's it's incentive alignment also like with our platform we're in the midst of um, introducing crypto payments onto our platform and our incentive for doing that is right now if we you know we have an impact center in guatemala who has a yoga retreat and, and they want to get their payment it takes like a week like, it's really, really not ideal um, with Stripe and, and the current payment processing um, system. So the, the original reason we became interested in crypto was the technology um, for more frictionless payment systems for our communities and, and eco-villages. So if people start to use crypto, our impact centers and people coming to our platform start paying in crypto, it's, it's an immediate payout and it's less fees. So it's, it's a great incentive. There's also, you know, you don't really have to try too hard to convince rats to abandon the sinking ship. 
And I think that like as as Facebook becomes more and more of a dumpster fire, people are going to start automatically looking for the different alternatives. You know? It's so toxic. Yeah. Uh, do you have any names of the alternatives? Just like well, like other examples of these alternatives. Steam it. Steam it. STEM is a blockchain-based social network. Uh, Tribe with a Y is a newer one based on a, a later iteration of that same sort of idea set. Well, so, but it's great. Oh, I am. Um, the, the other thing I just want to say is I think it's really cool how many people are like have shown up. So I, you know, those of you who don't know about blockchain or have never sat in a blockchain um, conversation, like I really like appreciate you showing up today to like take time to learn about it, um, so that you're not sitting on the sidelines while the all the hype is going, and at least like doing um, you know your best to educate yourself. And I would encourage you to continue to do so because it's like the learning curve is massively steep. Um, and even for us, I mean, it's, it moves so quickly and it's, it's hard to keep up with all the technology and the pace of the movement, but I would encourage you to continue to like stay in the conversation and educate yourself um, and encourage the people you know to um, you know, participate in the conversation as well. Just like really quick on that, is your uh, cheat sheet you mentioned publicly available? No, but I would be happy to, uh, okay. to send it out. Cool. Yeah. So, well, well, actually, this is all being recorded, and when it's released as an episode of Future Fossils, we could include a link in the show notes, maybe. Awesome. I would yeah. love to support Future Fossils. Yeah. Um, I'd like to take a stab at responding to the Commons question. So, um, you know, our civilization is kind of exponentially increasing the amount of private participation, and less and less non-known stuff, including Uber, which is trying to share so the question is, can we exponentially increase the amount of commons with non-owned stuff? And I think there is a way using distributed ledger to do this. Because um, if you start creating a currency, you're actually printing money and you're, you can tax it or whatever. And so you can use that money, because you're not in control of it, to buy housing, to create housing commons, food commons, whatever. So you could buy land, but then you allow access to um, people at cheap rent or even free or whatever, like, and food too in that way. And so. It's a way to allow the, 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 the money to funnel into creating commons. And so we think of it that way. There is, I think, a potential increase in that to move us back to non-ownership. Mm-hmm. Also, sometimes when we talk about these things, I also think about, like, in, isn't it like in China you can't even post a picture of Winnie Pooh on Facebook because Xi Jinping doesn't like this? Mm-hmm. Like, and so ultimately, like, if, what if you just had the most successful thing and then there's a state that just stops you from... from well, because it's governance and politics is the management of resources through the authority. So yeah, yeah, but, but, but so actually, to your earlier question, China represents a complete opposite, a, yeah. a totally centralized implementation. You know, like the, your that social scoring system is based all on a sort of. I mean, uh, you know, there are individual deals with individual like services providers mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, but it all comes back to, you know, it being accessed in one spot. You don't actually have access to that. You just have access to the output. And so, you know, in, in that case, it's it's actually a crypto, at least ostensibly, from the original white paper of the anonymous Satoshi, or pseudonymous Satoshi Nakamoto, was in, was intended as a stateless money system. You know, it was intentionally designed and has been ever since. That's why it's so popular among libertarians to route around that kind of censorship. Um, it's, yeah. oh. Sorry, I was just going to talk about time. I think this is more common, I'm not sure, but I understand another example um, is around voting and this sort of 
balancing act of transparency and privacy or anonymity. And so help me just flesh it out because I understand that blockchain will, will allow people to vote and for it to be publicly seen that you voted, you voted once, but not who you voted for. Is that accurate, or are there you, are there ways that this is actually rolling West out? West Virginia is implementing a blockchain voting system. Where you, is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm just so scared about all you know, the voting machines that are hackable by ten year olds right now. So <laughs> yeah, it's a very exciting world um, when you apply blockchain to uh, democratic institutions. Uh, there's one organization that I really recommend just taking a look at. They're called MyVote. M I V O T E. And uh, they and they are separate than Horizon State does their blockchain, but they have a really awesome model for how demo- you know our demo- our democracy is an operating system we invented when we were still getting around on horses. You know what other sector of society is being ruled by an operating system that was invented before we had? <laughs> you know we're still getting around on horses. And so that'll tell you something about how much we need an upgrade of our democracy. And um, that's a very interesting sphere uh, right now. And there's, there's a lot of different models emerging. And that's what I think is one of the really underlying things of this, is that this is a brand new concept. And a lot of people are innovating. There's going to be a lot of failed efforts. And there's going to be some that are just completely game-changing. Um, and so that's why it's nice to get a grip of what it means to think in a decentralized way rather than in a centralized way. Anyone else want to speak to blockchain-based, like on-chain governance and that kind of thing? And it's ULEX. What's that? ULEX is the new Holochain uh, mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. that Matt Shute and the Startup Societies collaborated on, and it's for um, basically a, a judicial system on, on a decentralized Chain platform that I think is up and coming is going to be fabulous. You mean something better than Ken Kavanaugh? I'm for him. We got a few minutes left. Does anyone else have a burning question? More, more of a comment on the um, notion of uh, the decentralized governance. It, one thing that seems to be not recognized very often is that what we call blockchain or distributed ledger is effectively embedded within a larger. Um, layered structure of technology, and there are off-chain impacts of on-chain activity. So there are very um, good examples of where you may have a um, a very strong uh, architecture that is deployed in a particular region where a government entity or another controlling uh, source could effectively interject through these other layers of the network. So it's not totally a pure system. Right. And uh, anyway, that, that kind of gets lost in the noise. So. Well, there was, uh, to that point, you know, you and I have spoken a lot about uh, Dan Larimer, the inventor of right. uh, uh, Schema and, and BitShares EOS, talks about uh, the limits of crypto economic governance because you, you can't guarantee that this network which exists inside a larger network right. is not subject to some sort of deep state or like, you know, people with, with uh, incentives outside of that network that are greater than whatever the incentives are inside. And, and I, I know that you've got to prepare for, you've got to get ready for your Yeah, class. I mean, this feels totally arbitrary, but I'm due at 3.30 in the solar room to kind of carry on this conversation with um, a workshop on making equitable cryptocurrencies a reality. So 
but we'll see you there. Yeah, so, <laughs> so thank you. And if, if thank anyone you else so has, much. before, you know, you got to go. Let's just thank Emmeline Freeman. Sam Johnson, Jacob Devaney, Raven Bishmanyana, Michael Garfield. Uh, if you want to hear this again, it'll be on future Fossils podcast. Uh, those of us who can stick around will to continue this conversation. And thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed making it. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with excellent shows like The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity, Third Eye Drops, and more. Highly recommend you go to mindpodnetwork.com and check them out. If you would like to recommend a sponsor for this show, or you just have some questions you'd like to ask me directly, reach out to futurefossils at protonmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next week.